uh, we're super excited about, we're calling this series Follow. And each and every week, we're just looking at why is it so important that uh, people heed Jesus' call to follow him. Now, when we opened up this series, we started uh, with the call of Jesus' four earliest disciples. I want us to look at that call again, and then we're going to ask a series of questions that are going to flow out of that call. So uh, let's read these words together. Matthew 4, verses 18 through 22. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were called fishermen. Come and follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and they followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee preparing their nets. Jesus called to them, and immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. Now, so what's so interesting about this call to me is that uh, Jesus makes his agenda for these early disciples really clear right out of the gate. He says, I want you to follow me, and as you're following me, I'm going to make you something that you aren't right now. And maybe if you didn't know Jesus very well, you'd expect Jesus to say something like, follow me and I'll make you more spiritual. He didn't say that. Or maybe we'd expect Jesus to say, follow me and I will make you a better person. But that isn't what Jesus said either. Maybe we'd expect Jesus to say, follow me and, you know, I'll make you more disciplined. But when he calls these four men, he doesn't say any of those things. In fact, what he tells them probably confused them because it wasn't something that they knew they uh, needed or even wanted. In other words, it wasn't a felt need. But yet, uh, Jesus said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Now, why would Jesus say it that way? Well, it's because they were fishermen. In other words, if Jesus were talking to a factory worker that made widgets, he would say, follow me and I will make you a maker of men not just widgets, right? If he were talking to an architect, he would say, follow me and I'll make you not just a designer of homes, I'll make you a designer of men. If you were talking to a home builder, he would say, follow me and I will make you a builder of men. And this goes on and on, right? In other words, as you speak my message, the message of my death, my burial, and my resurrection, you are going to be investing in people in a way that ripples out into eternity. And even though this wasn't something that was on their radar, it wasn't a felt need, they followed him anyway. And they followed him because of who he was. See, they both had a a previous experience with Jesus. Jesus had already taken them out on a boat. He'd taken them fishing. And at Jesus' instruction, they had caught more fish than at any point in their life. So they knew that there was something special about this rabbi, and so they followed him, even though they didn't understand what it would mean that to follow is to fish. To follow is to fish. In other words, to speak the important, vital message of my death, my burial, and my resurrection to other people. And it's also important to notice that Oftentimes, God's agenda for us is different than our agenda for him. We said this in week two of our series. In other words, if it were up to me, I would say, Jesus, 
maybe I want to become a fisher of men at some point, but what I'd really like right now is I'd like to be more organized, or I'd like to be more disciplined, or I'd like you to give me a better marriage, or make me wealthier, or happier, or more together, or maybe a better father, or a better boss. I mean, there's a lot of things I would have liked for Jesus to say here rather than fish. But Jesus says, Brad, if you really want to follow me, I may make you some of those things. I may do some of those things. I may check some of those boxes that are on your agenda. But at some point, you have to be willing to trade your agenda for mine. And to follow is to fish. And what's so amazing to me about this story is that over the next three years, these four men, Peter, James, Andrew, and John, that is exactly what they did. That is exactly what they became. I mean, it didn't happen all at once. There were some failures. There were some, you know, some setbacks. But over time, they became exactly what Jesus had imagined. These four men and others that Jesus called to follow him, they shaped and changed the world. We sit here today because of them, right? Now, here's what's so painfully obvious, and we just have to talk about this. When many of us become followers of Jesus, becoming a fisher of men isn't why we do it. In other words, we want God to do lots of other things for us, right? We want God to solve our crisis, cure our health, repair our marriage, rescue our children. We all come to God with an agenda, and that's normal. That's even okay. In fact, I don't think anyone understands this better than Jesus, and his grace and mercy are sufficient for that. He knows this about us. But we have to understand that the vast majority of Christians come into the Christian life as a consumer of Jesus rather than a follower. In other words, we come to God with our agenda and we hope God will check those boxes and run with our agenda rather than his agenda for us. So in the time we have left, well, here's what I want to do. I just want to ask the question, why is it so important that we be, you and I in this room today, become fishers of men, builders of men, makers of men. Why does that matter so much that that would be at the heart of what Jesus said to follow? And then when we, when we discover that answer, that's going to lead to some other questions. And so we'll try to answer some of the questions that rise up out of that answer. So why fish? Why does that matter? Why is that so important? The first thing we need to understand is that this is not something I'm saying. This is something Jesus said. And this was a claim that Jesus made in fulfillment of a promise made way back at the beginning of creation. In other words, this is the united testimony of both the Old and the New Testament writers. In other words, Jesus was the Savior that was prophesied way back in Genesis chapter 3, right after the fall of Adam and Eve. 
And it was in the fall that Adam and Eve, they became estranged from God. And, they, and, and you see this in their hiding. And they became estranged from one another because they're blaming each other for the first time. In fact, they even become estranged from themselves because they lose their sense of purpose and identity and meaning. And they're just lost apart from God. So, uh, and as that promised Savior, Jesus made these amazing, incredible claims, claims that no one else has ever made. And we're going to look at uh, one of these in John chapter 14. Nancy just read them to us a little earlier, but I want to give you the context for this. So in John 13, Jesus just told the disciples that he would be leaving. And so they are a hot mess I mean, they're devastated. They are heartbroken because they had plans and all their plans were riding on Jesus. I mean, he can't conquer Rome if he's going somewhere. So they're having this conversation and Jesus, and in fact, in these words, Jesus is issuing them comfort. He's comforting them. These are meant to be words of comfort to them. And so he starts this way. Hey, look, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. In other words, Jesus is just saying this. Look, you don't have to be afraid, guys. Even though I'm leaving, you can still trust me. I am still trustworthy. You don't have to be afraid because my heavenly Father is trustworthy. And I wonder how many of us in the room this morning need to just hear that message today. That no matter what you're going through, Jesus is trustworthy and he knows exactly what it is that you're going through. So he would say to you, don't let your heart be troubled. Even though I seem to be absent at times, I'm not. My eyes are fixed on you. And so some of you are here today and you just needed to hear that. That you can trust him, he is trustworthy no matter what you're going through. But then he reminds his disciples that even though he's leaving, he's not leaving to travel the world. He's not leaving to chase the American dream. He's leaving with them in view. He's leaving for them. Here's what he says. In my father's house are many rooms or many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, but I am going there to prepare a place for you. In other words, even my leaving is for you and about you. So, uh, so he's working with us in view. Now, I want to just, let's just think about this for a moment. Jesus has now been in heaven for thousands of years preparing a place for you and me. Now, I want you to think about the most beautiful place in the world that you can imagine. Maybe it's a beach, maybe it's a canyon, maybe it's a lake, maybe it's a mountain. Uh, whatever that place is for you, uh, Scripture teaches that God made everything we see and experience in this world in six days. Now, so let's, let's contrast that. If God could do that good in six days, how good can Jesus do if you give him a couple thousand years? See, there's just no comparison. These yearnings, these things that we would describe as so beautiful and fulfilling. Uh, friends, heaven is going to be that much grander, that much better. And then he says, not only that, not only am I going to go and prepare a place for you, but I'm going to come back and I'm going to take you with me so that you can be with me. 
So that, he doesn't say so that you can see heaven or see all the work I've done there. He says, look, I just want you with me. In the same way that you want to be with me, I want to be with you. I want you with me. He wants us to be where he is. This is just the unquenchable love of God for you and for me. And then Jesus makes a remark that seems counterintuitive to his disciples. He says, you know the way. You know the place that I'm going. So Thomas speaks up, and he just says what everybody else in the room is already thinking. He says, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? I mean, Jesus, if we don't know where you're going, if we don't have an address and a zip code, how can we plug that into our phones? Right? I mean, how are we going to know where we're going? There's no way. If we don't know the destination, we can't go where you're going. And then Jesus says something completely unexpected. I am the way, Thomas. I am the way. It's me. The way is a person. But he doesn't stop there. He adds, and not only am I the way, but I am the truth. Now notice that Jesus doesn't say, hey, I know the way. I'll show you. He says, I am the way. Notice he doesn't say, I teach truth or the truth has been revealed to me. He says, no, I am truth. But he doesn't even stop there. He says, I am the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. Notice he doesn't say, I bring life or I come with life. He says, no, I am life. And then he goes on to say this, and this leads to lots of questions. He says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, here's what all of this tells us. It tells us that Jesus believed he was the only way to God. He believed that it was by only through his death. In other words, he died the death that you and I deserve to die, his burial and his resurrection, that those things were the key to bringing people into a permanent relationship with God. That it was his death and resurrection that were the key to the forgiveness of God. That by dying, he was absorbing the very wrath of God that you and I all deserved. And so here's what we learn in John 14. There is no heaven without Jesus. If Jesus isn't there preparing a place for us, then there is no place for us. If Jesus isn't the way, then there is no way. Now, what is so important about this teaching is that the disciples took it very, very seriously. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, because they repeated it over and over and over again. See, after Jesus fulfills this promise and ascends up to heaven and leaves just like he told his disciples that he would, Peter is talking to a group of people. Now remember, this is the Peter that Jesus in the, in the chapter before had predicted would deny him three times out of cowardice. But the resurrection of Jesus had taken a coward and turned him extremely courageous. Peter had now, because he was on the backside of the resurrection of Jesus, so he's preaching, and he's talking to people that literally hold his life in their hands. In fact, he will go to prison for saying these words, and that's a risk he's willing to take. And in fact, it's a risk that he does take, and then he receives that pri prison sentence, and here is what uh, Jesus says. It's so in incredible. 
it says this. He says, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name un, in heaven by which men can be saved. Well, wait a minute. How did Peter know that? How could he say that so confidently? Because he was in that upper room when Jesus spoke those words in John chapter 14. And I want you to notice that he said there was no other name under heaven. He didn't say there was no other religion. He didn't say there was no other, salva- no other system of salvation because salvation isn't found in those things it's found in a person in a person then look at what it says amazing to me when they saw the courage in other words when these religious leaders that were getting ready to throw them in jail when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled ordinary men they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus Here's the takeaway. Jesus takes unschooled, ordinary men and women that the world has given up on, and he gives them a supernatural courage that's rooted in his resurrection. So sure, if you're here today and, you know, maybe you have a college degree, you've got a couple of diplomas, I'm sure God can still use you too. But the people God loves to use are unschooled ordinary men and women and it's so interesting to me this word unschooled you know what it literally means it means unsophisticated it means simple they were simple men uh anyone anybody remember the movie forrest gump forrest gump was what you might call a simple man in fact i think at one point in the movie he actually refers to himself that way see these were simple men saying and saying and doing extraordinary things simple men that god was using in extraordinary ways you know i I spent many many summers growing up in the south and in the south when somebody does something that reveals them as a simple man or a simple woman there's a saying that people have in the south for simple men and women when they do simple things they'll say things like this oh bless his heart you know well bless her you know bless his heart he tried you know bless her heart she she's trying you know bless her heart right see the writer of scripture is saying listen Bless these guys' hearts. They weren't the smartest men in the room, but they were the rightest. They were the rightest men in the room because they weren't telling these people what they believed. They were telling them what they saw, what they experienced with their own two eyes. And it changed everything for them. The resurrection of Jesus did that. And then... Uh, You know, not only does Peter repeat that message that Jesus gave in John 14, but another early follower of Jesus, a man by the name of Paul, repeated this phrase as well. What's so fascinating is Paul wasn't there in that room in John 14. Do you want to know why? It's because he was out persecuting this... this, organization that would come to be known as the church or this religion that would come to be known as Christianity. He was a skeptic. He thought that the best thing that could happen to these earlier followers of Jesus is that they would fall into a cavern somewhere and never come out. And so he did everything he could to thwart and stop Christianity until one day he met 
the resurrected Jesus. And it changed everything for him. And here's what he would say about this. He says this in 1 Timothy 2. Now, here's the context for what he's about to say. The context is this. He's encouraged Timothy to encourage his audience to uh, pray for all men. And then he says why it's important for, uh, for us to pray for all men. He says this. This is good and pleases God our Savior. Uh, in other words, he's talking about Jesus. And he says, look, it makes him happy when we pray for all men because he wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Well, what truth? The truth of Jesus, who is, who is truth. See, because the truth isn't just a principle, right? It's a person. He wants them to come to a knowledge of Jesus. He wants them to know God's heart. He wants all men and women to be saved. That's why Jesus came. And then Paul goes on. And he says, for there is one mediator between God and man. He doesn't say there are many mediators. He doesn't say there's a couple of mediators. He says, there's just one. What he's saying is, look, nobody else is coming for you. Nobody else is able to come for you. There's only one. One mediator between God and man the man, Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say, who, um, who, gave him, who gave himself as a ransom for all men. Now, most of us know what a ransom is. I mean, we've seen lots of movies around this kind of plot, right? The word ransom is a payment that's made to rescue somebody as in a kidnapping. So if you're a parent and your child is kidnapped or held hostage by someone, you're going to pay any price, right, to get them back safely. That would be the ransom, the price that you would pay to rescue your son or your daughter. I mean, this has been the plot of countless movies. But this is exactly what our Jesus has done. His death was his payment, his ransom to rescue you and I. In fact, a man named C.S. Lewis wrote a book uh, many, many years ago. This would have been the early 1940s, the end of World War II. The book was called Mere Christianity. And in the book, he talked about what he called the trilemma as it relates to Jesus. In other words, he points out that when people say this, because here's what people sometimes want to say about Jesus. Well, you know, I don't believe Jesus was the son of God. I don't believe he was equal to God. You know, I believe he was a good moral teacher, and I believe he was a prophet, you know, maybe a, maybe a prophet. But C.S. Yeah, so Lewis points out that Jesus didn't leave that option open to us, that Jesus was either a liar because he claimed to be God, and if he wasn't God, then he was a liar, which rules out the fact that he was a good moral teacher, or he was a lunatic Maybe he just, you know, because one of the, you know, one of the uh, most common illnesses that ends up in psychiatric hospitals is people who think they're Jesus, right? Well, Jesus really did think he was Jesus. So my point is this, that he was either a liar or he was a lunatic or he was Lord. He was who he claimed to be. And his disciples banked everything on the truth of that claim. Now, 
we're going to start to deal with some questions that start to come up when you talk about, hey, there's no other name under heaven by which men can be saved. So when people outside of Christianity hear things like this, or people even within Christianity, if they're hearing it for the first time, you know, it elicits all kinds of questions. It draws out all kinds of reactions. So you might hear responses like this. My guess is there are even some of you sitting in the audience, and you've kind of already had this thought maybe uh pastor isn't that kind of narrow i mean isn't it patronizing to say that your religion is superior to someone else's i mean i mean really aren't all religions i mean don't they basically just teach the same thing this is a myth that's so common in our day it's widely held this is a widely held myth a widely believed myth i mean hey aren't there aren't there all just different ways of aren't isn't each religion just a different way of making your way up to the same mountaintop you know, to, to the same God? And the answer is absolutely not. Nothing could be further from the truth. Um, so, so let's start here. If it is true that there are multiple paths or multiple ways to God, if that's true, it makes Jesus the stupidest and the most pitiable man who ever lived. We need to understand how demeaning this logic is to our Jesus because he suffered. He bled. He was tortured. And he died. And he's very clear about why. He believed that in doing that, he was making a way for you and I to approach the Heavenly Father without any, without any of the wrath of God. The wrath of God poured out on Jesus instead of you and instead of me so that we could be forgiven. But look, friends, if somebody could have just subscribed to the teachings of Muhammad or Buddha... Jesus didn't have to die at all, did he? And it just makes him look pitiable and really, really misinformed and misguided. You know, this is a big deal. And then uh, there's a number of myths that get all tangled up in these questions I want to try to untangle for us today. So uh, the first one is this, you just heard me say it, you know, hey, well, look, all major world religions are equally valid and they basically teach the same thing. How many of you have heard that out and about? Sure, all of us, right? I mean, it's okay. Uh, all of us have heard that. Uh, but listen, that is a superficial it's an incredibly superficial analysis. Uh, nothing could be further from the truth. Listen to me. Please hear this. If you've zoned out, please zone back in because this is the heart of what we're getting at. Listen, the message of Christianity, the, the basic central message of Christianity is the polar opposite of every other single major world religion. They aren't even in the same ballpark. It is the polar opposite of what every other major religion in the world teaches. Here's how you could summarize the teaching of Buddhism, of Islam, and of Judaism. Here's how you could summarize it. You ready? All three share this in common. Be good. Be good. 
Do better. Become a better person. Perform for God. Make sure God's not disappointed with you. He's really hard to please. That's the message of all three of those major world religions. But the message of Christianity is entirely different. It's this. He was good for me. He was good for me. In other words, while in every other major world religion, it's the initiative starts with me. I have to approach God. But in Christianity, God approached me. God took the initiative by sending his son Jesus to die in my place, therefore, thereby uh, proving his claim to love and care about me. In other words, God loved and cared about me and you before I ever did one thing to please him. The message of Christianity is completely different. Uh, Listen, the message of, of every major world religion is this. Good people go to heaven. But the message of Christianity is forgiven people go to heaven. No one is truly good except for Jesus, and he came to save. The the, The message of every major world religion is this. Do do, 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 do. The message of Christianity is done. It's finished. What Jesus did on the cross for you and me, the work has been done. You don't have to do anything except believe. You believe and you follow. You demonstrate your belief by obeying the Lord Jesus Christ. See, it's so important. Now, I understand. I want to, I want to, I want to tease out why this myth is so pervasive in our culture that all major world religions essentially teach the same thing. And here's why. So I want to show you a, a chart. It's, uh, this is actually uh, in, the, in the United Nations. So here you see the golden rule, right? So every, in fact, you can see there's even some splinter religions here. And all the religions of the world have some version of the golden rule. And what's the golden rule? Sure, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So people see charts like this, and they go, well, see, okay, so there's the goal. The goal is to be a good person. That's not the goal of Christianity. Because good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people go to heaven. It's so important that we get this. But what people do is they they see a teaching like this and they go, well, see, right there it is. That's the proof that all world religions basically teach, you know, the same thing. But, But you need to know in this room that that is an extremely superficial analysis. Of course, there's going to be overlap in some of the teaching of the world religions. Because there are some beautiful, listen, please hear this. There are some beautiful truths to be lived out in every single faith. In fact, when I was a a student at Dallas Seminary, our professors would sometimes say this. They would say, hey, look, all truth is God's truth. It all belongs to God no matter where you find it. Now, this leads to another myth that I want to expose because sometimes people people will say, hey, there's beautiful truths, right, in all the world religions, so they must all be equally true. 
And here's the way that this one gets spoken. To illustrate this one, some of you, if you're in college, maybe you heard this one. The story is told of three blind men who come upon an elephant, and they begin to touch the elephant to to try to describe what it's like. And the elephant is meant to represent the truth about God. Okay, so the the first guy grabs the trunk of the elephant and he says okay an elephant is long and um, thin like a snake and then but the other guy grabs the leg of the elephant and he says no no uh, God is like a tree that's thick and strong because he's touching his leg and then the third guy is touching the side of the elephant he says oh no 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 Uh, God is like flat and wide and then so the, the obvious uh, aim of the illustration is, right, all of those blind men had a certain perspective about the elephant, but none of them knew the whole picture, and that's the way it works with the major world religions. But here's the problem. The illustration backfires on the person who's sharing it because the story is told from the perspective of somebody who isn't blind, from the perspective of somebody who claims to see and know the whole elephant so how can you say that all world religions only have a part of the truth when you yourself are claiming to see the whole truth the whole elephant see somebody has to be able to see somebody has to know and guess what it's not you and it's not me I believe it's Jesus I believe it's Jesus. I believe Jesus came to show us the whole elephant. So let's tease this out even a little bit more. So far and away, the two largest religions in the world are Christianity and Islam. So let's talk through a timeline for a minute. 600 years after the church was born... After the New Testament was written, about 2,000 years uh, after the Old Testament was written, a prophet came along by the name of Muhammad, and he launched a movement that would eventually come to be known as Islam. And what you need to know is that Islam presented a very new and a very different story of Jesus than the one we find in the New Testament. Now, I want to remind you that the New Testament was written within 40 years of the life of Jesus. Muhammad came along 600 years later with a revised history of who Jesus was. Not because he'd been with Jesus, not because he'd heard from Jesus, but because uh, he believed he'd, that had been you know, revealed that had been revealed to him uh, by God. So Islam, this is so important to understand, Islam was a new story about Jesus that was different than the story that was being told about God through the Old and the New Testaments. Islam was a new story about an entirely different God than the God of Judaism and the God of Christianity. Uh, And I just want to remind you that the writers of the New Testament weren't telling us what they believed. They were telling us what they saw. 
So um, you go, well, how is that possible? How could he tell a story about Jesus 600 years after the fact? I mean, he didn't know Jesus. He'd never met Jesus. Well, he would say, well, I tell that story by revelation from God, but in contradiction to everything about God that's been revealed to this point. And here's why all this matters. So why fish? That, that was our original question, right? And let's, so let's not lose sight of the forest for the trees. Why fish? Why would God's agenda be for us to fish? Well, Paul's already told us, number one, he wants everybody to be saved, right? He wants to have all humanity, all people uh, in a relationship with himself. In fact, when Jesus talked about how God felt about people that were far from him, he would tell stories. He would tell stories about a shepherd that would lose a sheep and go just searching for that sheep. And that shepherd was meant to reflect the heart of God toward people that are far from him. Or he, he told a story about a woman that tore her house apart looking for a tenth of her inheritance, a widow who needed that inheritance to live. And so she tears her house apart. And then he told a story about a father that just waited at the door for his prodigal son to come home. And he said, all those things, all those people, they represent God's heart for people. And then in all three of those stories, every time, when, like when the, when the shepherd found the sheep, when the woman found the coin, when the father... The father didn't find the son, but he recovered the son, right? Uh, in all those cases, they all threw a party. He says, man, God celebrates when a lost person gets found. The shepherd rejoices. See, he, in other words, God doesn't sit back and wait to make the first move as he comes after you and me. He sent his son Jesus as a demonstration of his love. It's so odd to me. You know, we, we try to perform for God and prove to God why we're lovable and why we're worthy. And, and it's not necessary. Because he says, look, I know you're worthy because I sent my son to die in your place. This is so important. Listen, other religions say this. They say, I will send my prophets to help you find God. But Jesus came and said, I am God, come to find you. The Hindu Vedas say truth is one, but the sages speak of it in many ways. Buddha said, my teachings point the way to the attainment of truth. Muhammad said, the truth has been revealed to me. But Jesus said, I am the truth. I am truth. He made claims, friends, that no one else ever made. And I'll just say this, he backed up all those claims through a historical event, through his resurrection from the dead. I'll tell you another reason why it's so important that we fish. The message of Christianity, the grace of Jesus is counterintuitive. In other words, you can't sit down by a stream or under a tree or by a lake or on a beach and get that message, the grace of Jesus. You just can't intuit that. It's actually counterintuitive because uh, no other world religion is talking about God's grace. You're not going to hear it anywhere else. You're not going to hear it from anyone else. Everybody else is going to give you the same message. Well, just try harder. Be good. Just hope God accepts you. I mean, he's hard to please, but, you know, hey, if you perform long enough and hard enough and high enough, maybe one day you'll get there. Maybe one day. I mean, we can't know for sure. So, 
And then finally, the message of Christianity is a historical message. Listen, how do any of us in the room know history? Do we know it because we were there? No, of course not. Why? We know it because every one of us sat through a history class at some point in our life. Because it's a historical event, that means you have to be told. None of us can know history unless we're told. See, so uh, because it's rooted in history, we have to be told. So why should you and I, so why does God want us to fish? Because he wants everybody to know him. He wants all people to be saved, no matter what world religion they're a part of. He wants Buddhists to be saved. He wants Islamists to be saved. He wants extremists to be saved because he loves people. He just loves people, and he proved it by sending his son. Now, listen. I know, I'm, I know I'm going, well, I'm okay, actually, on time. I started to apologize because I was going long. I'm just, I just got confused because some of you were, like, napping right now. That's, <laughs> that's why I thought I was going wrong. But listen, if the world was being ravaged by an illness, right, and you had a cure, I mean, would you be called narrow-minded for sharing? What do you mean there's only one cure for illness? Would you be narrow-minded for sharing that with others? Of course not. That would be the loving thing to do. If I give you the key to my house where I am most loved and where those who most lo love me reside, and I tell you not to lose it because it's the only key that I have, is that being intolerant? No. In the same way, when we say that Jesus is the key to becoming a part of God's family and a part of God's household, that's not intolerant, friends. It's grace. And it's mercy for all of us because God wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of truth. And so this leads to the final question that often gets asked when you have this kind of conversation, right? Well, okay, fine. If Jesus is the only way, what about people who've never heard the name of Jesus? Like, like what happens to them? Now, here's the first thing I want to, we need to acknowledge. Whenever someone asks that question, they're acknowledging how important it is that we fish. Because if we're really concerned about people that haven't, you know, heard the name of Jesus, then we should be willing to speak the name of Jesus. So the question affirms the importance of fishing, right? Okay, having said that, Here's some principles that we can draw up out of Scripture to try to address uh, this issue. So first of all, we already know that, that Scripture says very plainly that God wants everybody to be saved. God doesn't want anyone left out. That's very clear in His Word. Secondly, we're told in the same passage that Christ's death and his resurrection were offered up as a ransom for all men and women. In other words, the potential is there in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection to impact and shape and change the entire world. Second, thirdly, the God of the Old and the New Testaments is called the God of all people. He doesn't show favoritism, right? He loves all people equally. He's the God of all people. 
Now, here's where we're going to do a little bit of a deeper dive. Uh, So we're told in the Bible that God shows himself to anybody that would truly seek him, that God reveals himself to them, that unfortunately there's kind of a caveat here because uh, Scripture also teaches that every one of us are born with a bent toward going our own way, doing our own thing, living by our own rules rather than pursuing God. But if someone were truly to pursue God... The Old and New Testaments both promise that God will show himself to them. We also know from Scripture that God cannot be unfair, that when God looks and judges someone, he doesn't do that from outward appearance or just the circumstances. No, he looks into their heart. He judges based on motive. He he judges based on what actually happened, not just what maybe might have happened or a lawyer could argue could have happened happened he knows so he always judges fairly and then this one's uh interesting to think about see we already know the bible already tells us that people will be in heaven that there will be people that will be made right with god who had never heard the name of jesus all the saints of the old testament in fact jesus himself acknowledged this paul taught it explicitly He said that all the people of the Old Testament were made right with God through their faith. They were made right with God through their faith. So if Jesus is the only way, then what that means God did is God took the faith that they placed in him and he applied the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus, which had yet to be happened because after all, God exists outside of time. He exists above time. He isn't confined by it. And he applied that death, burial, and resurrection to them so that it, their faith was credited to them as righteousness. So, and let's be clear. Nobody is going to be in heaven because they lived a good life, because they loved mightily, or because they were especially sincere. Because for all of our sincerity, there's times where we're insincere. And for all of our love, there's times where we're terribly unloving and even hateful to other people. And there's times where for all of our goodness, we do the wrong thing and we know when we're doing it that we're doing the wrong thing. And that is why the death of Jesus is so important. And for people to know the grace and the mercy of our God. Listen, grace is a game changer. Let me give you an acronym for grace and then I'm going to quit talking. Some of you are like, oh my God, thank you. Thank you, thank you. So grace, if you were to think about grace and what it spells, G-R-A-C-E, right? It's God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches at Christ's expense. Listen, that word is a game changer. It's a life changer. It's an eternity shaper. And it is the central doctrine of Christianity. And you won't find it anywhere else. You just won't. You know why? Because it only comes through Jesus. 
And people need to know that God is a gracious God and a good God and a merciful God and that they don't have to earn his love. He's already demonstrated his love by sending his son Jesus Christ to suffer and bleed and die on a cross. Listen, Christianity isn't about trying to say that we have this superior moral framework, right? I mean, listen, if Christianity is rooted in a word like grace, how could we possibly think think for a moment that we would be superior to anybody like it's certainly not about having a better moral framework than uh, than an islamist that has nothing to do with it it's an issue of forgiveness look if i'm walking in the humility that grace deserves how am i going to how am i going to treat someone from another religion no matter what the religion is I'm going to treat them with respect because in humility, I recognize, look, there but for the grace of God go I. I mean, we're all equally needy and equally dependent on the grace of God. So we can't approach anyone else from an attitude of superiority or or a lack of humility because I come to Jesus the same way everybody else does by his grace and mercy. May he be glorified. Not me, not us. It's not even about us. And one more thing. I keep saying I'm going to shut up. Well, so, you know, it isn't even about, look, because this whole thing of, you know, well, it's superior and it's narrow and all this. Um, You know, Christians should expect to find and meet people of other world religions and be able to recognize that those people are more moral, that they are kinder, that they are gentler, that they are more loving than we are. We should be able to recognize, and here's why. Because it's not about us trying to become, I mean, sir, I believe if you're a follower of Jesus, you're going to become kinder. You're going to become more gentle. You're going to become more loving. But that's not the end game. The end game is Jesus. The end game is having Jesus. The end game is knowing Jesus. The end game is staying close to Jesus. Because he's the only one who can come for us. He's the only one who's qualified to do it. And he made claims that nobody else made. So see, because it isn't about, the message of Christianity is not go out and be good, be more moral than everybody else. The message is you're a sinner, you fall short, but Jesus took the punishment on himself that you deserved. How do you respond to a God like that? You love him back and you walk humbly in front of other people and you represent him well with kindness and gentleness and respect which is the way that Scripture calls us to interact with people who don't believe the things that you and I believe. This is so super important. Listen, here's one of the challenges of life. It's just learning how to love people that you don't agree with. This is the great challenge of marriage because here's what happens in a marriage. A man and a woman get together and they get married and then they go, they wake up one morning and go, she doesn't think like I do. Like he doesn't think like I do. Like how did this happen? Look, Look, learning to love people that you disagree with is the single greatest challenge, not just of Christianity, but of life. And we're called to do that by our Christian faith. 
So let me pray for you and for us, and then we're going to respond to our God. Listen, how do you respond to, to that kind of grace? You worship. Papa, I'm so grateful to be a follower of the way, to know you, the way, the truth, and the life. Would God, would you help us be a people? Would you help us be a church that would represent you well? But God, let us be a church that would represent you. Don't let us be silent. Don't let us put it off on somebody else. History needs to be told. Help us to be tellers of your history and your love and your mercy and your grace. And it's in Jesus' mighty name that we ask. Amen.